0: Welcome to When Songs Mean Business. I'm your host, Steph Belcher. Today I'm talking to Judan Armenti. Judan is a 20-year veteran of the music business who has worked in ticketing, finance, and administration at multiple live music promoters on the East Coast. During the pandemic, Judan started a company called JA Creatives Consulting, where she educates creatives about basic accounting and finance, as well as counseling them on music business practices. Her goal is to dispel the myth that creative people aren't good with math, money, or business i love this mission so much it's something that i try to teach as well judan and i both believe that all creatives have the skills to navigate the intersection of art and commerce judan says that with just a little bit of knowledge careers and lifestyles can be improved all that stands in the way is mindset and practice in this conversation we talk about the box office and how it's the hub of the venue we talk about judan's favorite show ever She's diving into the myth of the starving artist, why taking care of your finances is a lot like learning an instrument. We dive deep into the differences between income and profit and professionalism and being a hobby musician. We talk about the 80-20 rule and how to double your fan base over and over again exponentially, how to use numbers to negotiate your deals, and pricing and selling merch at gigs. You're gonna really get to know Judan. She is a wonderful lady, and I'm so excited for y'all to hear this. As always, please follow us on Instagram at When Songs Mean Business. Join our Facebook group, When Songs Mean Business, and check out the Patreon, Patreon.com slash When Songs Mean Business. So let's dive in to you guessed it, When Songs Mean Business. <laughs> How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you?
1: Doing great. Thank you so much.
0: Good. Uh, It's nice to meet you.
1: Nice to meet you too, Steph.
0: I really support your mission.
1: Thank you. I I think that we we share that mission from all that I saw on your website.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So actually, that would be a a great place for us to start. I I would love to hear your whole story before we kind of start to dive into specific advice that we can give to emerging artists. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you do and kind of how you got to this point in your career?
1: Yeah, basically, it actually all started before my career. <laughs> and I was just a wee little lassie. <laughs> <laughs> but like so many others, I also had the dream of being a musician. But through good intentions, it was kind of set aside. Because all I kept hearing was have something to fall back on. Uh, And so the old backup plan, plan. Um, you know, always be ready to live that secondary life. So (laughs) I was kind of pushed into business courses because everybody was going on about, you know, this happened to this artist, this happened to that artist. And we still see that today with all the lawsuits that went on with Prince and George Michael being probably the most famous ones. Sure or should I say infamous ones? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So um, basically that's kind of how I segued uh, with my career. I went into accounting and after a few years, I was just like,
0: oh, I hate this.
1: So (laughs) I, I went back into the music industry and that's when I started working at venues. And I started off in the finance department. I went into the box office and... It's, it's crazy how much you can learn in the box office, mm-hmm. but it just really showed just how important it is for artists to understand how business works, because if everybody else is operating a business and you're not, you're not going to be able to make sure that you maximize what is due to you.
0: Yes, I agree completely. So, can you- yeah. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about working in the box office as actually like the one job that I've never really done? And oh, I was, really? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I was at a venue, but I was kind of more of like administrative assistant and I would love to hear more about, you know, kind of what that day-to-day looks like.
1: Um, the day-to-day is never day-to-day. It's never the same Although, like anything else, you get to predict what's going on, but something's always going to change. There's always going to be somebody who puts a stick in the wheel and you're like, oh, Um, but basically the box office is really the hub for a venue because ticket requests are coming in from every department, the salespeople are always coming in trying to make some kind of spectacular thing happen. And of course, then you're dealing with the public, and they have their own way of making it a very interesting, interesting, interesting experience. Yeah. There, where I was with the Wells Fargo Center here in Philly, and then rest in peace, the Philadelphia Spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> that's that's where my childhood was in the Philadelphia spectrum so I pay I've actually homage.
0: never been to Philadelphia which kind of breaks my heart I need to come that's and okay. like really do it up properly well it's a, it's a, such a rich historical town so yeah really you've got
1: plenty of time we'll <laughs> welcome you anytime you get here thank you thank you we're not going anywhere <laughs> <laughs> so the,
0: the spectrum was a cool venue
1: well it it was actually the first venue that was targeted for doing shows oh, cool. um like in the country was, I don't think in the country I'm not okay. really sure but um definitely here in Philadelphia where it was specifically for that um that and housing the Philadelphia Flyers when they came about oh, neat. so yeah. it was it was automatic that the founder builder owner whatever um ed schneider he basically had the flyers needed to build a building for them and knew he'd need to augment off season and decided to start having shows and events and partnered with what was then electric factory concerts um oh, sure, with yeah. larry maggot and uh started putting on the show what so, was the
0: what was the capacity
1: spectrum was about eighteen thousand, i think it was oh, big yeah, it it was big, but it was it was big in the sense that it was it was big for its day, mm. but it was very utilitarian. Mm. It wasn't big the way buildings are today. There were okay. no suites or anything like that. So uh, it was just arena, a, arena, a arena, hockey arena. Yeah, like a it was <laughs>
0: hockey arena. Yeah, I got it. I got it. <laughs> yeah.
1: So there were no luxury boxes or anything like that. Um, but yeah, working in the box office, you really get to see how how people really feel mm. ab- about the event. You know, you get people who don't know what they're coming to and the families all like, don't say anything. We have advertising all over the place. How could they not know? (laughs) But, um, you know, it's then you have things like people who are thoroughly invested in the event and the people they're coming with are not so much. Mm. So then it's like this person wants this price level. This person is just like, just get us in the door. That's enough. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But um, it's definitely a different atmosphere every moment, every day. So it, it can be as harried, scaried, and mayhem in a controlled sense, or it can be just, anybody here? Anybody want to come talk to me? Come buy a ticket. <laughs> <laughs> so Did but, you yeah. have
0: to do the accounting as well on the back end for
1: that? Yeah. Yeah, there, there were reports. There's always reports that have to go to the finance office, the management offices that says, this show did this many sales, this is total in cash, this is total in credit cards, so that that way the accounting departments can reconcile everything that's automatically going into the banks. And then, of course, the marketing team needs to see the reports on the shows on a day-by-day basis so that they know how to better target their efforts. And of course, then you have um, the management and the promoters talking about all the different things that they have to make decisions on based on what the marketing does. So in essence, the box office is really the measure of what the marketing department's able to do.
0: Mm. Do you think that's that, do you think that holds true over every different size venue?
1: Well, yeah, because you can only make as many sales as people know what's going on or are invested in it. So you reaching your target market is measured by your sales. Mm, Right. So by showing what you're you're selling ticket wise, then you're able to target your market. Then you have things that you're looking at as far as what tickets are actually selling because there's always multiple price levels, unless it's Pearl Jam. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's it's one of those things where you're like, okay, maybe we price this too high because this medium price is what everybody's buying. So then they decide whether or not the higher prices need to be brought down to that. If there's, you know, big open gaps and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: there's, there's all kinds of things that they're doing that way.
0: That's super cool. So what, what job came next after the the spectrum and the Wells Fargo was that kind of like one job where you did both venues or did you end up switching companies?
1: Actually it, the spectrum and the Wells Fargo center were literally in the same parking lot okay so in philadelphia we have here in south philly the whole neighborhood we're basically on all four corners is the wells fargo center what was the spectrum the phillies ballpark and the eagles field oh, neat. and okay. literally they meet at one intersection so when all the buildings had something going on please take a the train <laughs> please take the train (laughs) (laughs) so but um yeah so it's it's all contained there and basically the way that it was working for me at that time I was actually a member of IATSE and their local here in Philadelphia for ticket sellers
0: can you tell the listeners what IATSE stands for
1: yes IATSE is the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees
0: cool So that's the union that you would join if you were working for a big venue or a theater company?
1: Yeah. Basically, they're going to have different quote unquote locals that you would join. And some of them are based on what city you're in. And sometimes it's based on what specific skill that you have. Oh, gotcha. So just here in Philly, it was just treasurers and ticket sellers. Okay. So that means box office managers and window sellers. So then you have up in New York, it would just be the New York branch where you have stagehands, carpenters, etc., all in the the union there.
0: Awesome! Thank you for clarifying.
1: <laughs> no problem. No problem at all. Um, it's it's really a great great organization, and I highly recommend anybody who's looking to get into. The administrative side of things that they, they invest in getting into the union. So basically after that, it gave me the opportunity to work in any and every venue between Atlantic City, out to Lancaster, down to the Delaware border, wherever somebody was working as a box office manager that was tied into IATSI, I would be able to be on call for, for them and, and go and work in that venue. So I've actually worked in nearly every major venue here in the Philadelphia Tri State. That's
0: so cool. I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to give me your gut reaction, okay? Was your favorite show that you've seen in any of those venues? First answer. It's a tie. <laughs> okay, that's um, fine. I, I'll take a tie.
1: Well, see, there's the fan side of me, uh, who is just automatically going to say Aerosmith. Oh, okay, okay? Yeah. They put out a great I've, show. I saw them. at the yeah, last in Cleveland. Right. I've seen them probably more than a hundred times, thanks wow. to my career and, you know, just stalking them. <laughs> but <laughs> there, there was this one event that career-wise, I would say, is my favorite because it was unlike anything else. Tell and it was it. this this show called walking with the dinosaurs okay this um company in australia figured out how to animatrise dinosaurs cool. to where they had them nearly quote-unquote life-size and so they put this whole show together and i believe that the spectrum was actually the debut of it okay. i think on On the East Coast, and they literally had a dinosaur that was able to reach up to the base of our third level. <laughs> its its neck was so long, and you know we were working the show and working the show, and we we don't always get to see the beginning of a show, mm-hmm. but we had this set up to where there were three showings a day, so we could easily sneak in, and I finally got to be one of the ones to sneak in, and I went in. And it was like walking into a library. Mm -hmm. This thing is full of families and kids. Silence. (laughs) Absolute silence, except for the guy who was doing the narration. The kids were just so spellbound at seeing these dinosaurs. It was was magic. It really, truly was. Just to have thousands of kids. Wrapped yeah. in attention to this one thing, and I'm just like, because we're like, we didn't even want to whisper to each other about how amazing it was because everybody was just entranced. It was beautiful, it that's was really so
0: cool. Beautiful. I have three kids, I would do anything for them to be silent.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but can you imagine, you know, having that kind of experience? Just like my wackadoo thought goes to how many of those kids is. Are going to have that as like a pillar memory of their childhood yeah you know Uh you know that one do you remember when Uh so that's that's one of the things that really makes working in a venue really really special
0: oh i love it i love that i love that thank you for indulging me in that so um judan i saw on your website you have a little blurb at the top of your website about the myth of the, the struggling, starving artists. And I would love to mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that. In all of your experience, how did you kind of land on that as your mission?
1: Well, obviously, the pandemic helped with that quite a bit because everybody was sent into a tailspin with how am I going to make any money if I can't go out and perform? performing is always the number one way to make money and basically to make quick money. Um, So with nobody being able to do that, I was watching some musicians that are established, some that are very new, and their attempts to utilize the internet for that to, to get some money. And I'm seeing, you know, small bits of money going back and forth and, you know, just everybody trying to be generous, but not necessarily providing a living wage so to speak but for me it really you know ticked on to the myth of the struggling artist if an artist was struggling they were certainly struggling during the pandemic and probably still so with my background as a fan as a person who's in finance etc I really believe that artists have a greater capacity for understanding their money a lot more than they're given credit for. And frankly, when you're not given credit for something, you don't take credit for something. And yeah, so for, for me, I really try to bring it home that musicians specifically are so much better with quote unquote numbers or money, or whatever you want to call it, than they believe.
0: Thank you for saying that. (laughs) Say it again for the people in the back. the (laughs) most important lesson that you can take away from everything that Judan and I teach. Mm -hmm. You are better with money and numbers than you think you are.
1: Well, here's the thing. There is proof to this. Right now in education, everybody's hot and heavy about the STEM education, which is science, technology, engineering, and math. Mm -hmm. So they say, and there's studies out there, there are proven studies that show a background in music heightens the ability to master those topics.
0: Somebody just sent me an article yesterday that said, don't teach your kids coding, teach them how to read music.
1: Exactly. So transversely, then that means musicians are good at math. They're naturally inclined to math. It's just, we all take in this message that is misplaced because there's also then conversely this idea of how everybody learns. So if you weren't being taught the way that you are able to learn best and you're being told, well, you're just naturally not inclined towards this. Well, you're going to start believing that myth. But here you are creating something beautiful and moving and and wonderful and based in math.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I see guitarists get up there and start talking to me about intervals and Lindian scales. And mm -hmm. then they're saying like, oh, no, I don't really want to add and subtract my income and expenses. And I'm like, well, here's
1: the
0: yeah." it's just patterns. It's all just patterns.
1: Right. And I also found that terminology tends to throw people to the skids, Mm -hmm. meaning that when you and I have a conversation about money, we're going to be using different words to describe things that really everybody understands you know we we can say budgeting we can say forecasting we can say planning they're all the same thing we can say cash flow analysis everybody actually knows what that is but when you hear words and phrases and terms everybody goes I have no idea what that means I'm intimidated by that I don't understand but the thing is is that every industry has those terms so if a musician is starting to feel like, they're like, oh, I don't get those terms. I'm not going to be able to understand that kind of thing. I'm like, dude, I don't understand an arpeggio. So let's just throw some of your terms around and just see if anybody else just doesn't recoil back and go, oh my God, I don't understand that. That's a mystery. That's kind of, oh. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's all in basically taking on your power and just understanding it in really practical ways.
0: I love that. I, I have this same conversation with people all the time who use really heavy uh, producing software. Mm-hmm. The stuff that I look at and I have no idea what any of those lines and waves mean. Yep. And mm-hmm. they look so smart to me. And you're right, it's all science. It's all mm-hmm. engineering. A spreadsheet yeah. is just engineered math basically and I think that the hard part comes from troubleshooting so there's like a mindset element to it where Mm -hmm. you have to understand the importance of the end goal of what Mm -hmm. you're doing you know because if I ask you to keep track of everything you spend every single day for the rest of your life you're going to be like gross why unless you know why right unless you have a goal you have a reason You have some kind of like North star that that you're looking towards. Um, Mm -hmm. And then it's just a matter of, of making sure that you can solve problems when they pop up. Cause I've noticed Mm -hmm. a lot of people are like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do the thing. I'm super excited. I made this gorgeous spreadsheet and they start typing it in and then they get that reference exclamation. And then they're like, (laughs) okay, well now I'm, I'm done. I've made a mistake. And the
1: spreadsheet
0: worked really well for three months, but now it's
1: broken and I'm done. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's funny, you know, it's true. <laughs> yeah. I like to kind of explain taking care of your own finances um, the same as playing an instrument. Okay. Because when you started off playing your instrument, everybody in your household, left while you were going to be playing they put on headphones if they had to be there they locked themselves in in a room and and tied a sweatshirt around their ears whatever they did to to not hear what you were doing in order to survive and then you got better and they stayed and they just had it as the background and they got used to hearing it and you got better and then they sat and they just listened and they're just like, well, you're fantastic and you came from us. You're
0: one yeah. of us, you're awesome. And now well, strangers you, are paying you for that.
1: <laughs> right. So as you got better with your playing, it got easier and people get drawn to you. Yeah. When you're doing your finances, yeah, you're struggling at first. You're learning you know, what you're doing and you're learning how the programs work, but you're struggling, you're learning, you're getting it down And then you're getting better. It's getting easier. And then guess what happens? You start to find that money is coming to you. (laughs) Money is leaping towards you because you understand things that are different. Like you understand the difference between income and profit. You know, you understand exactly how you need to behave to make more of one and make more of the other or make more of one by... Not having as much, but getting rid of expenses and and et cetera. So you understand how everything is interwoven, so to speak. And it's just something that takes practice. And so I always teach people to do the same thing that I literally do myself. Every weekend between Friday night and Sunday night, I spend half an hour updating my own spreadsheet with every transaction that hit my accounts. It doesn't matter if it's my bank account, my credit cards or whatever. And I put everything into their assigned columns and such and boom, I'm done for the week. And everybody can get to that point if you just practice.
0: Sure, sure. If somebody's listening to this and they're thinking Mm -hmm. right now, I actually don't know the difference between income and profit. How would you explain that?
1: Well, income's the money that you're making, that you're getting paid for whatever gig you have. It's the money that's coming in from outside sources. Profit is what you have left over after you've paid for whatever expenses it takes to do your job and to live your life. Mm. You can consider profit to be quote unquote savings. Or you can consider your profit just simply to be your actual, well, net income, because that's what it is. Mm -hmm. If you choose to put that in the savings, bravo. If you choose to, quote unquote, reinvest it in what you're doing, bravo. If you choose just to waste it on a big meal at a fancy restaurant, yeah, we'll talk later. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I was just talking about that in an episode that I recorded on Wednesday about um, not blowing through all of your profit in order to lower your tax liability Mm -hmm. and then printing an income statement trying to go get a mortgage or something. Right, right. And trying to explain like, oh no, I do make money. I just spend it all on sushi.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's crazy how there's a kind of easy way to understand a person's investment in their career by how they spend their quote unquote excess income, mm. I have uh, a story that I actually stole from a friend of mine. He was managing a uh, young band and they got a gig at a club and they were only making a hundred bucks for the night. But you know, okay. hey, it's a hundred bucks. Yeah. They're at the level where you know you make some money just to cover your expenses, you get the exposure, blah blah blah, you're done. Well, it took them $35 in expenses to get to the gig. Okay, rational person understands it takes another $35 to get back home from the gig, Indeed. so that's $70 out of the hundred that you have left to split up amongst. I think it was like three or four guys, I can't remember the, the details there of that story, but. What that young band did was also asked to comp in five friends for the gig. And then they went to the bar after their show and started buying their friends drinks. So that kind of told me it was more of a hobby than a career for those individuals, which is fine. Everybody likes to be able to say I was in a band once. It's all good. But those are the kind of detrimental decisions that at the moment don't seem like decisions. Mm -hmm. It's just, Hey, yeah, I'll get that for you. I'm just being a friend, Mm -hmm. but it's literally a a decision that you're making not to make money.
0: Yeah. That's a really important mindset switch.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: And I I would probably suggest to the listeners that this is something you don't necessarily know until you've made that mistake Mm -hmm. and you leave a gig with less money than you arrived with Mm -hmm. and if that isn't sitting well with you as you're listening right now and you're thinking yeah if I did that that would that's not what I'm going for then you're you're working your way towards professionalism a little Mm -hmm. bit more you know every day right and so Yeah. Yeah.
1: And then also you got to think if I've already gotten my friends into the gig for free and I'm going to pony up to the bar and take care of their drinks, you've got to be of the mindset that you've basically invited your friends to your office. Mm -hmm. You've invited them to your work and therefore, yeah, they're your guest, but there's going to be some reciprocal exchange because in a creative career, you have to depend on your friends first to support you. So for that, I would say, you know, they've been listening to you for free for a long time. So if you have them with a free ticket each, I would say they better be bringing five friends with them to support you. (laughs) And that's
0: where that exponential growth comes from anyway. mm -hmm. You know, if we follow like the 80-20 principle where Mm -hmm. 20% of your fan base is going to bring in 80% of your income. That means that 80% of your fan base is going to kind of come and go. You're going to see them at one show or Mm -hmm. two shows and, you know, maybe they're going to pick up the first vinyl, but they're not going to buy the whole discography, right? So Mm -hmm. you need fresh blood. You need your friends, the 20% to be bringing you the 80% so that you can constantly be converting people and moving them from like I I like to think of it as like circles that move outward so you have Mm -hmm. your team yeah and and the volunteers and that core that those core people that will will never necessarily pay but they're in that circle with you and then Mm -hmm. you have that first outer circle that's hopefully pretty small that's like The people who have supported you so much that, yeah, they're going to get a comp ticket, but you know that when you put out a merch bundle, they're going to buy it or they're going to be the first person that supports your Kickstarter and they're on the guest list forever, but (laughs) it all works out. And then you move outward from there and then that outer level, that's where the new people are coming from and you got to try to move them inward as close as they can and make the most amount of money off of them.
1: Right. You're always trying to increase your fan base by the 80-20 rule. And basically, you're always hoping to bring them further and further in and increasing your core audience Mm -hmm. so that that way it keeps you being able to make more that they're going to want to have. Um, So they basically are the ones covering your costs Mm. so that you can put out new material and then you know, a new 80-20 gets built up every time. It's something that you really have to keep in mind, particularly when you have the professional mindset, because you want to be able to have a career of longevity. There's a particular artist artist that I always talk about. Um, love him to death. He's a great guy. Uh, his name's Jeffrey Gaines. Mm-hmm. He's not necessarily recognized anytime I say his name, But he's a fantastic singer-songwriter. He's lived here in the Philadelphia area for 20 years. He's originally from Harrisburg. And he's been playing and recording since the early 90s. He had a big radio
0: hit when I was in radio.
1: Yeah, probably his cover of Peter Gabriel's In Your Eyes.
0: Yeah, maybe. I remember the name. I remember seeing the name on all the radio hit lists. Yeah,
1: He's, he's just fantastic. And he's still... Playing around everywhere, anywhere he can. And he has never needed to have, quote unquote, a real job. Mm -hmm. He's a professional musician. He always has been. He always will be. And the thing is, is that he's toured with so many people that he literally knows every international musician that you could probably name. They would probably recognize his name. And that's a level of musicianship and quote unquote fame that I think is worthy of aspiring to. I that gets you completely. into the yeah, it gets you into the category of being a musician's musician. Mm-hmm. So that to me is is a goal worthy of anyone more so than being a Bruce Springsteen. Yeah,
0: yeah. And that musician's musician comes with a level of professionalism as well, right because of the reinvestment opportunities that you were talking about earlier, you know if if the band had not spent all of their their thirty dollars mm-hmm. at which is you know if as far as the band is concerned as a business, mm-hmm. if you spend seventy dollars to get there, you have a 30 percent profit right you know, and clothing is 50% is kind of the keystone, 30% mm-hmm. profit. Like my gut reaction is, yeah, let's bump that up to closer to 50, but a 30% mm-hmm. profit is not terrible by any means. No. And so it sounds disappointing. Oh, we got paid a hundred, but we only get to keep 30 of it. But when you're making a 30% profit, that is enough percentage to be reinvested. You could even split it and reinvest 15 into a week-long Instagram ad or, you know, something that kind of drives up, like, just because they're small numbers doesn't mean that they're necessarily small percentages. Right. And so there's a mindset switch there too, Mm -hmm. where, you know, small money doesn't mean hobby money.
1: Right. Exactly. It, It means that there's potential for that big money. Because if you, if you are attuned to the financial aspects of, of it and you're able to identify when you switch from identifying the dollar amount to the percentage amount, then that's going to show you, well, we did this right. How can we do more of that and make even more? So you think about it and you say, okay, well, we talked to the, the venue And they paid us a hundred bucks. We showed them already that we could bring five people to the door because we asked for five tickets. (laughs) But if we want to make more money than the hundred bucks, how do we help the venue make that money so that they can pay it to us? Mm -hmm. And you say, okay, well, first off we say, okay, friends, which do you prefer? Do you prefer the free ticket or for us to buy you a drink? It's gotta be one or the other. (laughs) And then you say, okay, friends, need you to bring at least two people with you. Four or five, six will be better. And no, you're not getting them on the list. They're paying. Yeah. Keep that in mind. And that's that's how you work it so that the venue sees you bring people in. And then you get to say, okay, we were just an opener and we can show you that we brought in, say five people, You know, each brought two. So that means there was 15 people coming through the door just to see you. And you're able to do that every time and increase that number to where you get 30, 50 people coming in. That's the way it's always been traditionally built. So you can say, I got 50 people in here. Your capacity is a hundred. Let's see what we can do as a headliner. And then you get really creative and say, instead of you just paying me a fee, let's do a percentage of the door. Because then you have control over marketing it and you get to say, a little bit more about what the actual price is that people are paying at the door.
0: Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that. So for students that are listening that maybe haven't negotiated their own door deal before, what are some kind of starting percentages where what could they expect a door deal to look like?
1: Well, you have to be able to say that I can bring so many people and you justify that either by previous performances as an opener, because they're always ticking off who is coming to see whom. That's why every door person is like, oh, who are you coming to see tonight? (laughs) You know, Um, so you have to have those numbers backing you up. Then you also have to be able to say, okay, well, here's my Facebook numbers. Here's my Spotify numbers. Here's this, that, the other thing. And I know that so many people from this area have already commented about previous shows that we've done here. So that also gets you to be able to say, we have an additional audience that we can tap into. So that's when you say, let's do a 50-50 split of the door.
0: I love to start with a 50-50.
1: Yeah, you just straight up go for 50-50. You, okay. you, you, you want to make sure that you're showing the venue, that you're working with them. Mm-hmm. It's a partnership that you're working with because... Everybody wants to stay in business. And everybody's going to think that somebody who owns a club has money. Most often, they're struggling the same way that you are. If the pandemic didn't show that, I don't know what will. But you have to show that you're in partnership with them and you want them to stick around because that's someplace where you get to play. So you want to have that place available. You want them to stay in business. So therefore, you do your best to make sure that they make money. But the trick is knowing that most of their money is made at the bar. So therefore you can negotiate the door as much as possible. That can be basically where you get the most money. And so therefore, if you can prove that you can bring people in and you show them continual growth with that and show them continual effort on your part doing marketing, then they know that you're in partnership with them and they'll say, okay, yeah, you're right, man. You, uh, you brought in so many. We had a door price of 20 bucks. Let's do a 50-50 split. And I'll tell you what, maybe we can bump up the, the door price to 22 bucks. Yeah, like day on you or something,
0: yeah.
1: Right, and and we'll both make a little extra on that. Mm-hmm. So that'll that'll be good. So it's always being able to look at it from both sides and understand that you're actually working with somebody, not just trying to get the most out of it for yourself yes because just like you're trying to build up your audience you need to build up your network of places where you can play because those are the people that are going to get you from playing a hundred seat room to a 500 seat room and then them to you know the next level and level up
0: i have never met a promoter that only booked one room right ever they're always covering the range from Mm -hmm. clubs to theaters Sometimes arenas get mixed in there too. And it is possible for you to start in a club with a promoter that you love and work with them throughout the early parts of your career and move up into some really gorgeous places, you know? Yep, yep. And the thing
1: is, is that if they see you do well at one club, they'll book you into another. And depending on who they're having headlining, you could find yourself being asked to do an opening gig here, there, everywhere for somebody else. And you never know where it's going to lead to because know this now everybody knows everybody. Everybody talks to everybody. Promoters talk to each other. They're not, they're competing, but they're not necessarily competing against each other. And there are people that worked for one promoter and went to work for another one. They could be easily taking you with them and you still work for both promoters. Nobody's, you know, it used to be where there's an exclusive rivalry kind of thing, but that doesn't exist anymore. I mean, I hate to keep going back to it and flogging you know, the horse, but the pandemic has taught us that we need each other. Yeah. And so therefore we really have to work together for us all to survive. Absolutely. And taking advantage of that mindset right now is the best thing that any musician can, can do mm-hmm. because That's the best way to make sure that your career and your experience in the industry is always artist centric, which is what I firmly believe needs to happen.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Can we talk a little bit about another element of the live show income stream, which is Mm -hmm. selling merchandise at your Mm -hmm. gigs? Did you have any experience doing any kind of bookkeeping for that? Or, you know, have you... Do you have any advice for our students on how they can track profitability on mm-hmm. cost of goods? Uh, one, I, I guess I'll take a real quick step back. Um, one of the things I like to teach my students when they are first figuring out how to keep track of everything is nice. to make four different spreadsheets with regards to live gigs, income and expenses, and that's to track profitability. Same thing with merchandise income and expenses, and Mm -hmm. then a third spreadsheet for royalties. Mm -hmm. And the reason that I have ended up doing this is because people pour, I've seen on tax returns, people pour so much money into the recording of their intellectual property only to put it up on Spotify and make $35 every quarter on the royalties. And they're not seeking additional licensing opportunities because they're using the live gig income to cover the cost of the recording and that's a mindset switch that i try to encourage people to make to think mm-hmm. of it as let's keep the profit for the live gigs in the profit mm-hmm. and let's keep the profit for the merch in the in there too and let's go if you spent $20,000 recording a record let's shoot for that big sink. let's apply for that sync licensing house mm-hmm. that you think is out of your league but maybe isn't you know let's actually re- reply to that email from SyncCon that says here's the opportunity you know mm-hmm. click here and all you have to do is submit your disco link or whatever mm-hmm. so i uh, i have had people start moving those recording costs out of right. the live gig income and so i've found this a lot too with merch 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 has pretty significant profit compared to recording Mm -hmm. and live gigs just because of the expenses. So I just wanna kind of talk about merch for a minute and hear your experiences on that.
1: Yeah, at all levels, you have the opportunity to do merch. It's going to be up to you to figure out which one is most beneficial to your audience. Uh, I can go completely old school on you and remember when you could buy bumper stickers to put on the back of your car or, you know, have 47,000 Bon Jovi buttons on the same jacket. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But, you know, that was a different generation. Yeah, stuff's
0: free now. Those are (laughs) pro materials now.
1: Exactly, exactly. But, you know, back in the day, you could sell that and make a pretty profit off of it. Yeah. Today, you have to decide whether or not your audience wants a t-shirt versus a thermos or whatever it is that they're going to utilize. So it's all in minimizing your expenses to produce that stuff and then see where it's going to make its money. Because there will be different things that are going to be better off sold on your website and things sold at your gig i like that obviously clothing is going to be your best bet because you literally want somebody there who is going to buy a t-shirt and put it right on their back Mm -hmm. that is your core audience member right there Mm -hmm. that's that's your uh marketing avatar
0: yeah, they're <laughs> are literally turning themselves into a billboard for you.
1: Right, exactly. So and that's the happy guy. To
0: do it. They're proud of you.
1: Right. That's that's the guy or girl that's going to be coming back for multiple shows and looking to stream or download or whatever for your music. That's the person that's going to make themselves your lifelong fan. Mm-hmm. That's that's the person you want to hook in. So you need to decide what it is that really appeals to them and have it there with you. It's not always easy. Um, You basically have to see what your profit margins are, which means how much you're spending on something, what's it going to take to build in a profit for that item and make sure that your price for it is reasonable. You don't want to spend $15 on getting a shirt made and build in another $5 of profit only to find that somebody's not going to pay 20 bucks for your t-shirt. If you can get it made for 6 or 8 bucks and build $5 of profit in on it and then put a price of $15, then you're more likely to sell it. You can't just simply think that you can put together a sweatshirt and sell it for 75 bucks the way that a major artist would. It's just not practical at, at whatever stage you're at, um, unless you're Bono. And then any stage you start at, you're good. But <laughs> th- those are the kind of things you need to look at is how much does it cost? And frankly, how much can I get away with charging for it? But I hope you all heard what I said. Your cost plus profit, then what is a reasonable price? So we had an $8 t-shirt to, to make. expected profit, which adds up to $13. And then I said, sell it at 15. So yeah, you always figure in a definite number of profit and then go for what is reasonable as far as the price goes. So you can make an additional $2 on that, which gives you the ability to say, okay, so the price is 15 for for you to sell the t-shirts to whatever friend, family member, girlfriend you have at your merch stand. Then they have somebody that comes up and this girl is just like, oh my God, I saw you guys at this place. And I saw you guys at that place. And I finally have this, that, the other thing. And oh my God, I just lost a $5 bill in, in, in the bathroom and blah, blah, blah. So I only have $12 in order to, to buy a t-shirt and somebody can have the judgment call to say, sure, no problem. We'll discount it by three bucks for you. And you haven't lost anything.
0: And you have a connection with a fan because that fan knows you did them a favor and Mm -hmm. they're going to be appreciative of that and they're going to tell everybody about you and how awesome you are.
1: Right, exactly. But you have to know that you already have looked out for yourself before you look out for the fan. And then that generosity to the fan, that is marketing gold. That person is just going to be crying at every song for that night. And they're going to be telling every friend that they see the next day all about the show and the fact that you guys are so cool. You were able to let her slide on being short for that t-shirt. And she's still going to have it on four days later.
0: (laughs) Yeah. 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 Oh, that's such good advice. Thank you for sharing that. I, I, I think that merch, I love the idea behind building a community around your merch. And mm-hmm. having it almost be like a team uniform. Yes. Yeah. So I think it's it's the kind of thing where it's more than just a souvenir from a show. Mm-hmm. It is a stamp of identity and right. priority. And you know, um, a lot of my friends are into the band Fish. Mm-hmm. A lot of my, a lot of my friends from college are into the band Fish now. Still. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's this circle uh because the drummer always wears this outfit with circles on it and they call Mm -hmm. it the donut and Mm -hmm. now you see that circle anywhere and you know they're a fish fan and it's so subtle people are wearing it on ties and on socks Mm -hmm. businessmen are wearing it they make this blazer suit coat Mm -hmm. that has it on the inside of the the collar yeah in the liner Mm -hmm. yeah exactly And it's so subtle, but Mm -hmm. the phrase that the fish fans use is we're everywhere. And that's, you know, they'll snap a picture of like a businessman on the subway, put it up on Mm -hmm. Twitter. It says we are everywhere. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the Grateful Dead skull. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah. There's, it's, it's everywhere. I think there's a whole community aspect to creating your merchandise and you do have to have that community first, but I loved what you said about asking them what they want. Mm -hmm. It's such an important part of it. And um, sometimes there's some pushback, you know, like, because then does the artist, is the artist obligated then to make every single thing that the fan wants? No, not necessarily. You know, it's like a, a poll system. Right.
1: The thing is, is that you can only worry about what you can do with what you can do. Meaning that if you're just starting out and you're like, okay, you know, we made 30 bucks off this gig, yeah. we're going to reinvest it in some merch, you know, yeah. how much, how much can you really do? Uh, but when you build up to that, then you can say, okay, we're making a standard 30% income from every gig. Let's start carrying t-shirts. And if that's all you have, that's all you have. That's Okay. Yeah. Because there is this theory of giving too many options where people get into decision paralysis. Yeah. And then quite often you can end up making nothing because it's like, oh, I can't choose. I'm not going to get anything at all. Totally. But if you just have t-shirts, then guess what? You can say to people, these are our first t-shirts. Anytime you go to a new venue, these are the first time we're selling t-shirts you're going to be one of the first ones to have our t-shirts
0: that's so cool
1: and and that just shows them that guess what you're in on the ground floor you know something special right here right now and you can have people seeing you walking down the street with this t-shirt on and go oh my god where'd you get that t-shirt who are they Mm -hmm. you know and you'll know that you have the inside scoop
0: yeah yeah i love that i love that um i want to talk about you for a few minutes Okay. As we start to wrap up, because we are mm-hmm. getting to the end of my baby's nap time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, but I would love to know a little bit more about what you grew up listening to and what some of your favorite bands are right now.
1: Okay. As if I haven't already placed my generational yeah. stamp on me. <laughs> no,
0: no, I have, honestly, if you look at my like age range for who listens to my podcast, I, it's, <laughs> it's heavy in the over 40s. So you're-
1: <laughs> well, my um, my first fandom moment was with Jim Croce. Oh, okay. My parents
0: loved Jim Croce.
1: Yeah, I was actually a toddler, technically, okay. when I fell in love with Jim Croce and started torturing my parents with Jim <laughs> Croce records. They um, they bought them on their own, and I discovered them, and I put those on, and I. I tortured them. I was the little girl running around the entire house, listening and screaming and singing along with Jim Croce all day, every day. That's and um, it was it was even before I was school age. So um, the the little story that goes along with that is that he lived in the same area that we did.
0: Oh, cool.
1: And I figured that out.
0: Mm.
1: And I was probably about six or seven, and I started nagging my dad to try and find Jim Croce's house cuz my dream was I just wanted to see him live. I just wanted to experience music live and feel it wash over me. Oh, cool. And I had it in my head that I was just so adorable that I could just knock on his door and ask him to play me one song cuz I knew I couldn't go to any of the local gigs cuz I was just too little and my parents were sticks in the mud and they wouldn't take me. So I I kept nagging my dad I kept nagging my dad and he kept saying oh he doesn't want that no (laughs) such a killjoy dad well not too long after that I went in to talk to my mom and I'm like when are we going to get another Jim Croce record Mm. and she's like we're not and I'm like what you talking about Willis (laughs) and she's just like there's not going to be a new record he died Oh no! I was just like what how is that possible
0: your your childhood innocence stripped away (laughs) it was Uh. it was just like
1: the opportunity was gone I'm just like I've spent years listening to this man and you're telling me he's not going to do any more music oh
0: my god no heartbreaking oh I can feel your pain
1: but I've I've always listened to him constantly he he's he's the touchstone of my musical lessons.
0: I love that story I I probably have a Jim Croce record in my my dad I got I inherited my dad's collection
1: yeah I'm gonna
0: look I bet there's one in there I'll text you a picture of it
1: (laughs) (laughs) play it for the baby (laughs) yeah
0: that's actually a really good idea yeah cool what was your first concert
1: van halen 1984
0: oh man you opened big
1: (laughs) well here here, here's the story behind that (laughs) um they were filming the panama video that night and i can actually (laughs) identify myself in the crowd
0: no way that is so cool
1: yeah we were on the side of the stage right at uh, michael anthony and there's this white blob up in like a few rows up and i'm like i was wearing that
0: white shirt oh my god that's me that's so cool. will you send me a screenshot of that i want to share it with my patreon people
1: oh gosh i'll have to find it yeah,
0: if it's on youtube no yeah rush. yeah so that, yeah i'll definitely a look cool for that Little like added thing i love that <laughs> and what have you been listening to lately
1: um lately i've been listening <laughs> this yeah. is hilarious um You think that Facebook ads do nothing because, you know, they just pop up and you're like, yeah, I've already looked for that dresser and bought that dresser five minutes ago. Thanks for advertising more dressers for me. Yeah. But I found in my feed a video link for this band called Tommy Space. Space is spelled with two S's, S-P-A-S-E, and The Alchemists. Sounds cool. And... They have this total um, carny vibe to them, (laughs) but it is just some of the funkiest music I have heard in the longest time. They've got like a little bit of ska rhythms in there and just really, it's it's, visually, it's obviously a, a punch to it, but musically, it just literally does take you on a ride and I love it.
0: That's neat i'll have to check them out tommy space s-p-a-s-e yes
1: Yes. tommy space and the alchemists
0: that's cool i just had a thought that you might know my philly friends hoots and hellmouth have you heard of them they were kind of like folk americana
1: yeah they yeah
0: they've kind of disbanded because they started yeah i was
1: thinking that they were back in like the um the aughts maybe yeah
0: Yeah. i saw them I randomly walked into their show at South by Southwest in 2007. Oh, okay. And um, I had kind of met them already, like in the elevator. of the hotel, uh-huh. And they were fun, you know, just fun dudes. And so then I, I stumbled upon their show and I was like, oh yeah, I met these guys already. I'll stay. And they just blew yeah. my mind. I don't remember any other show I saw at that South by except them. Wow. Yeah. Then I had them play at my wedding and oh that's fantastic for a while yeah they were really fun they're they're my homies
1: see that's that's a great experience and and that's what every musician is is hoping for you know this that one person that's going to be there as long as they are yeah and you know it's it's really a great thing when you make that connection it's i love them there's there's nothing as precious as the connection well besides mother and child father and child (laughs) (laughs) there's there's no connection like an artist and an audience Mm. it's it's just something really sacred and worth holding on to yeah
0: i agree completely um The last thing that I want to discuss with you really quickly is the kind of services that you're offering right now. I was looking at your website earlier and it looks like you have some fantastic financial services available, especially for emerging artists and your prices are really affordable. So can you kind of tell me a little bit more about who you tend to work with and like how people can hire you?
1: Well, you can go to my website, jacreativesconsulting.com. There I have The various services that we have. I have workshops that start every two weeks for basics on budgeting, then business practices, and then basics on just tracking this stuff so that that way it doesn't pull you into a state of paralysis. So those are the three different workshops that I offer. I also have individual consulting if you feel like your needs are unique to those three workshops basically i work with anybody who is just simply coming into it or someone who is convinced that they just can't do it that they're just buying into the myth of the the struggling artist who who doesn't go into the whole business aspects of it Mm -hmm. and basically anyone Anyone who thinks that they have issues with these these kind of things, I want to work with them because it's so much easier than anyone can expect. And it's something that you can truly tailor to yourself so that that way you do it in a way that's understandable to you. So long as it ends up going and feeding into a financial statement with a balance sheet and an income statement, however you do on the general ledger side of it, the back end, the bank isn't going to care. So, yeah, totally.
0: Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly.
1: So, um awesome. and then also, also I also have, I don't know if you saw, I have a planner that I I, did I see created. That. That's so
0: cool.
1: Yeah, I I really wanted to make it so that it was for musicians and I have goals that they can set for themselves and then mm-hmm. projects that they have as well to meet those goals. And within the projects, I have all the tasks that they need to do in order to successfully make that task happen and an area where they can do their projected budgets and their actual expenses so that they can see right there on the same page with their tasks, what they need to do and how they can get there financially.
0: I love it. I, that's so important. That's something that I, I use the Panda Planner version of that.
1: Yeah, and I, I had the panda planner for a while. Well,
0: nice. I always kind of wish that there was like some musical element to it, you know, like a creative kind of aspect. Like what, like you said, what projects do I want to work on? Like what songs do I need to write? What do I need to record? What's the budget for right. that? Because mm-hmm. it's it can be a very like day to day hand to hand to mouth kind of thing. So I just want to wrap up and say thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And tell us one more time how musicians can find you.
1: Uh, you can just simply go to jacreativesconsulting.com and reach out to me there. Uh, there's plenty of ways to connect me. Also, if you're on Instagram, uh, you can go to uh, consulting there. Uh, Facebook, we have a page. LinkedIn, we have a page. So, and you can always look for me on Clubhouse too if you're on there.
0: Oh, cool. Awesome. Awesome. Judeanne, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you, Steph. It's been a great conversation. Thank you so much.
0: When Songs Mean Business is a production of Steph Belcher Business Management LLC. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by me, Steph Belcher. Please make sure to join us in our Facebook group When Songs Mean Business and follow us on Instagram at When Songs Mean Business. As always, thank you to the dropout for the break music. Thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful day.